worship very special. I've been knowing your pastor for well over a decade. I can remember when he was a first-year seminary student at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, he and Tara served on staff with us at Mission Lab for uh, a while. And I've watched him grow and mature and eventually now being called as your pastor. I know that you love him and pray for him regularly, and I pray that God will just bear much lasting fruit through his life and through his ministry here at Cross Point. How many of you have grown up in a tradition where you recognized and celebrated the Advent season? Can I see your hands? Oh, a few hands, okay. How many of you are not all that familiar with Advent? Okay. Well, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I didn't know anything about Advent until I'd been a pastor for a number of years, and I discovered what the Advent season was all about, and I felt like uh, we could borrow it from uh, the Roman Catholics because a lot of other Protestant and evangelical denominations had done so. And it's an awesome time of preparation as we focus on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the word Advent really means. It comes from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And it's that season of the year when we remember the arrival of our Lord Jesus Christ God in human flesh, the incarnation. It's that time when we celebrate Christ's first coming as a baby in a manger, but it's also a time when we need to anticipate His second coming, His second advent as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When I was pastor, I often met with couples for premarital counseling, and sometimes I felt the need to warn them that they were spending more time in preparation for the wedding when they really needed to spend more time in preparation for the marriage. Now, there's nothing wrong with making plans for a wedding because, after all, it is designed to be a once-in-a-lifetime event, amen? <laughs> it should be a celebration. It's worth planning all the parties and the meals and the decorations and sending out invitations, but what's most important is not the wedding, but rather the marriage. And we ought to spend at least as much time preparing for the marriage as we do for the wedding. So this being the first Sunday of Advent, it's a good time for us to think about the difference between preparing for Christmas Day and preparing for the coming of Christ. Now there's nothing wrong with getting ready for Christmas. I hope that you survive the pre-Black Friday sales that started on Thanksgiving Day this year. I hope you survive Black Friday and Small Business Saturday, and I hope you have your online shopping list prepared for Cyber Monday, and I hope that you will plan lots of great meals and times of sharing with your family and friends to celebrate the big day because Christmas Day should be a day of celebration. But what's most important is not Christmas Day, but rather what Christmas Day points to, and that is the coming of Christ into this world and the coming of Christ into our lives. So for the four Sundays of Advent, as a congregation, I understand from your pastor that you'll be looking at passages from the prophet Isaiah that focus on the coming of Christ, the Messiah. Now, I asked Pastor Nick to go ahead and assign me one of those texts, and he did. He assigned me Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And as I started looking for resources, I began to realize that I had never preached from this text. And the more I looked, I began to wonder if anybody had ever preached from this text. Now I know why he assigned it to me. 
We're going to look at the entire chapter because I think we need to get the full balance of what Isaiah is saying there. It's kind of a good news, bad news sermon. But before we get there, I want to talk to you a little bit about Isaiah. As I've studied and prepared, it's just amazing uh, what God did in and through the life of this prophet Isaiah. He's known as the prince among Old Testament prophets. His name means the Lord is salvation, and it's similar to the names Joshua and Elisha and Jesus. Isaiah is quoted directly in the New Testament over 65 times, more than any other Old Testament prophet, and he's mentioned by name in the New Testament over 20 times. Isaiah was born the son of Amos, not Amos, but Amos. And he prophesied during a period of the divided kingdom when Judah was the kingdom in the south and Israel, Samaria, was the kingdom to the north. And he directed most of his prophetic messages toward Judah and their capital city of Jerusalem. Isaiah was a contemporary of Hosea and Micah. Now, Hosea preached in the northern kingdom of Israel. Micah preached in Judah. In fact, most scholars believe that Micah actually copied our text, uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and it appears almost verbatim, word for word, in Micah chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Isaiah served during the reign of four kings in Judah, Uzziah, who is also referred to as Azariah in 2 Kings, his son Jotham, Ahaz, oh, wicked Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who did bring about some spiritual renewal to Judah. And he served as a prophet probably between 739 and 686 B.C. He probably came from a, a fairly wealthy family with some social status because he had easy access to the kings. He was married and he had two sons that bore symbolic names. Now, you thought Eichelberger was challenging. Listen to these symbolic names. The first son was named Shir Shashub. Shir Shashub. And it means a remnant shall return. And then the second son, Mahir Shalal Hashbad. Mahir Shalal Hashbad. Yeah, it's a mouthful. And that, that name means a remnant shall return. I'm sorry, the second one means a hastening to the spoil, hurrying to the prey. Now, every time these boys' names were mentioned, their names represented a meaning, and this meaning rang out into the ears of, the, of those who were hearing their names. And the youngest son, a, re, a remnant shall return. And, and that was being used prophetically in those days, or hastening to the spoil, hurrying to the prey. Now, tradition, and there's no proof here, but tradition has it that Isaiah met his death under wicked king Manasseh. And based on Hebrews 11.37, we believe that he was sawn in two. He was cut in half with a wooden saw. What an ending for a giant prophet. Well, fulfillment of some of his prophecies in his own lifetime. Now, that's really something, you know, that you make a prophecy and it comes to pass while you're still living. It provided Isaiah with impeccable credentials as a prophet. Let me give you some examples. Sennacherib was king of Assyria. He tried to take Jerusalem and he failed just like Isaiah predicted he would in chapter 37. The Lord healed King Hezekiah of a critical illness just like Isaiah predicted in chapter 38. And long before Cyrus was king of Persia and appeared on the scene, Isaiah 
prophesied. He predicted that he would be Judah's deliverer from the Babylonian captivity in chapters 44 and 45. And then, of course, the fulfillment of his prophecies concerning Christ. First advent, the first coming, give Isaiah further credibility in chapters 7, 9, and 40. Those are the more familiar uh, passages that we look at around Christmas time. But the real centerpiece, the real centerpiece, the jewel of Isaiah's prophecy is found in chapter 52, beginning at verse 13 and covering the entire 53rd chapter. I'm sure most of you are familiar with those, those verses. They portray Christ as the suffering servant. And they portray in graphic detail the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Phenomenal prophecy there in Isaiah 52 and 53. Now listen to this statement. The pattern of the literal, literal fulfillment of his already fulfilled prophecies give us assurance that the prophecies from Isaiah and other prophets as well concerning Christ's second advent, his second coming, will also see literal fulfillment. So just like these prophecies were literally fulfilled, many in Isaiah's own day, well, we'll also believe with all of our hearts that the prophecies concerning the second advent of Christ, his second coming, will also be literally fulfilled. Well, to our text in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, uh, we're going to look at the entire chapter. We're going to go all the way down through verses 22. But this is part of a sermon that actually starts in 2 verse 1 and concludes in chapter 4 verse 6. And part of the purpose of this message that Isaiah is sharing with us was to critique the great kingdom Uzziah had proudly built during his prosperous 52-year reign. And by the way, when King Uzziah died after reigning for 52 years, it was similar to the death of John F. Kennedy. We just recently celebrated, if you would want to call it that, celebrated his 50th anniversary of his assassination, recognized it. It shocked the nation and it shocked the world. And it literally rocked the foundations of Judah when their beloved king Uzziah died. Second Chronicles 26 describes a few of the highlights of Uzziah's reign that are consistent all throughout Isaiah chapter 2. Uh, Uzziah's army was massive, and it was much more uh, powerful, uh, more uh, superior to all the other surrounding nations, which allowed Judah to really enjoy a prolonged period of great economic prosperity. Uh, Judah even had interest during this time, during the reign of Uzziah, in ships and seaports and developed a commercial seaport on the Red Sea. And Uzziah built all kinds of things. I mean, he just was a builder. He, he constructed walls around the cities. He built high towers and all kinds of great military fortifications. And although Uzziah did some things that were right in the sight of God, one thing that he overlooked, he allowed the people of Judah to continue to offer sacrifices on the high places. He allowed people to continue to practice idolatry. And so Uzziah's reign ended in disgrace when through his pride, and he was such a proud, proud king, he offered a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem and God inappropriately. He stepped in the place of a priest, had no business doing that, and God struck him down with leprosy and uh, he never recovered from that leprosy and he died. So let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 2. 
the vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And this idea that he saw it means that it was divine revelation. God gave him insight. God gave him the words to write down and share what uh, was being placed upon his heart. And then he starts out in verse 2 talking about the last days. Now, most of us who've been in church for a while understand the last days who have been ushered in by the first advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would consider that we are now in the last of the last days. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ through the rapture and then the seven years of tribulation and then uh, the, the end time, uh, the, the, the culmination of the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom being established on this earth. Well, Isaiah really didn't understand all of that. When he talks about the last days, he's just talking about the last days of human history. I don't think Isaiah and the other prophets of the Old Testament saw the church age. They didn't understand that Jesus would come the first time and there would be thousands of years, 2,000 already, that would uh, transpire before he came back. Uh, that was a mystery to them, uh, a mystery that had not been revealed. And so the Apostle Paul talks about that mystery in several of his epistles in the New Testament. But he says in the last days, in the last days of human history, as far as Isaiah is concerned, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now talk about attending a seminar. This is the seminar of all seminars. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord will go out from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. What hope. What a vision of the kingdom of God becoming a reality on this earth, not just in the hearts of a few, but in, in reality, literally, Jesus reigning out of the capital city of Jerusalem, uh, it's just a marvelous, marvelous vision of hope and peace. And then verse 5, he says, House of Jacob, come and let us walk in the Lord's light. Kind of the invitation after those first initial verses. House of Jacob, people of God, have you heard what I said? Do you see the vision that I'm casting? Do you want to participate in that kind of kingdom? Do you want to live in the presence of the Lord? Well, then come and let us walk in the Lord's light. Let us hear his instructions. Let's walk in his paths. Let's follow his steps. Let's obey his truth. And then here comes the bad news. Because not only is Isaiah critiquing uh, the kingdom that Uzziah established over those 52 years, but now he's beginning to critique the, the real condition of the people of Judah. They've been going through the motions of worship. It's been it's empty ritualism. Uh, they've been worshiping uh, God, quote-unquote, but they've also been offering sacrifices to the high places, to their idols, and, and it's really a mess. Things are not the way they should be, and so God is giving um, Isaiah this insight into what's really taking place in the hearts and the lives of his people. And 
So it begins in verse 6, For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of divination from the east and of fortune-tellers like the Philistines. They are in league with foreigners. Their land is full of silver and gold, and there is no limit to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, and there is no limit to their chariots. In other words, after 52 years of peace and prosperity, they're wealthy. Uh, they've got a strong army. They've been depending upon their wealth. They've been depending upon their military. Their land is full of idols, though. And they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So humanity is brought low and man is humbled. Do not forgive them. And this is not Isaiah saying, I, if I were you, God, I wouldn't forgive them. He's simply saying that they've gone so far, now they're going to have to suffer the consequences of their sin. The, the consequences that come uh, with their idolatry. In verse 10, go into the rocks and hide in the dust and from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor, human pride will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. I think Isaiah is really pointing us to the great and terrible day of the Lord when he returns and he will rule and reign as only he can. And we see already in what happened to the king, Uzziah, he was brought low, he was humbled, he was a proud man. But the Lord dealt with his pride. Verse 12, For a day belonging to the Lord of hosts is coming against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it will be humbled, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the high mountains, against all the lofty hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against every ship of Tarsus, against every splendid sea vessel. Did you hear that list? It's almost as if he's saying everything that Uzziah has built, everything that Uzziah's kingdom represents, all the wonderful things that he has produced, all of his accomplishments, because they were done in pride and not done for the glory of the Lord, they're going to be brought down. So human pride will be brought low, and the loftiness of men will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The idols will vanish completely. People will go into caves and the rocks and holes in the ground, away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he rises to terrify the earth. On that day, people will throw their silver and gold idols, which they have made to worship to the moles and the bats. They will go into the caves of the rocks and the crevices and the cliffs, away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he rises to terrify the earth. You've heard the old saying, you can run, but you can't hide. They're running. They're trying to hide, but they're not going to hide in that day. And so he concludes in verse 22, and this is kind of like verse 5 in terms of an invitation. Put no more trust in man who has only the breath in his nostrils. What is he really worth? Is he really worth placing your ultimate trust in? That's what he's asking. Well, I told you it was good news and bad news. Um, did you note verses 5 and 22? These are kind of the invitation verses. They call for a change, and they suggest that Isaiah hoped his words might transform the thinking of his audience so that they would not be so proud and so self-absorbed. The kind of change needed explained by the placing of the evils of Uzziah's earthly uh, kingdom, his earthly reign in verses 6 through 22, 
in stark contrast with the glorious principles that govern the future kingdom of God that we saw in verses 1 through 5. So the prophet argues that the audience should trust God and walk in his ways so that they might be among those who will eventually enjoy this ideal kingdom where God reigns supreme and everyone lives in his presence and there is perfect peace and prosperity. And the sermon's goal was to focus people's attention on the necessity of exalting God and walking in his ways rather than exalting themselves. In other words, they needed to deal with the sin of idolatry. Now, trusting in possessions, social status, political power, human accomplishments has never impressed God. But he is looking always for humble people who will boldly devote themselves to exalting him alone. Just like the people in Isaiah's day, the people of Judah, we like to think that we ourselves sit on the throne of our own hearts, that we are in charge of our lives, and we can do whatever we want, and we know what's best when it comes to making us happy. But dear friends, the Bible says that if that's the case, we're just fooling ourselves. We're just fooling ourselves. The human heart will always have a king. But too often that king is a false god or an idol, which will eventually destroy our lives. You may be familiar with Timothy Keller. He's pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And uh, he's written uh, prolifically. He's had a lot of books written. And uh, one of his books is entitled Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. Gosh, you don't have to read the book. Just read the title. That's life-changing right there, isn't it? Well, he begins with a quote from a French philosopher who visited the United States back in the 1830s. And then he sent back his observations to his own country of France. In one of those observations, he said this about America. He said that there is a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. A strange melancholy that haunts the citizens of the United States in the midst of their abundance. And Keller argues that the melancholy comes from our tendency to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. That is what the Bible calls idolatry, taking some good gift of God and turning that good gift into a God, little g. The thing we look to in order to give our lives meaning and purpose and security. This is what Keller writes. He says, and I quote, We think that idols are bad things. But that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. We can turn our family into an idol. We can turn our country into an idol. We can turn our success into an idol. We can turn our appearance into an idol. We can turn our money into an idol. Now, these are all good things, but they are not ultimate things. And they don't make good rulers or gods in our life. 
And if we put these good things on the throne of our hearts, we will never find the peace that passes understanding that can only be provided by the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will instead be plagued by a strange melancholy even in the midst of our abundance. Been attempting to read a book here recently. I don't know if you're familiar with it. God's at War by Kyle Eidelman. This is uh, the kind of book that you can only read for a little while, then you've got to put it down and deal with your convictions. Uh, Eidelman says that idolatry in 21st century America is not just a problem, it is the problem. And he opens up the last chapter. He's talked about all kinds of gods. And the last chapter, I guess he saved the best for last, or the most challenging for last. He talks about the God of me. And he talks about a book that was written uh, back in the 60s by Dr. Milton Rokich. Uh, He was studying mental illness. He was a psychiatrist. And the title of the book is The Three Christs of I'm sorry, Simplanti, and I'm not sure. If you're from Michigan, I'm probably destroying that name, but it's Y-P-S-I-L-A-N-T-I. Ypsilanti. Is that, is that close? Michigan. Somebody from there? Ypsilanti? Oh, okay, Ypsilanti. After about the third time, I got it. Okay. Well, Rokich, is, he's, retreated, he's treating these three patients at a psychiatric facility in this place in Michigan, and... Uh, The patient's names were Leon, Clyde, and Joseph, and they all suffered from visions of grandeur, uh, delusions of grandeur. Uh, It was a common disorder. Uh, They all three believed that they were actually Jesus Christ. And you've heard of the Messiah complex? Well, these three guys took it to the next level. And so uh, the doctor worked hard at the task of introducing them to reality because they were not dealing with reality. They thought they were Jesus Christ. And it was difficult for the doctor to break through. And in his book, he tells about trying to convince these men that they really weren't God in the flesh. And so for several years, he had the three guys living together. They ate all their meals together. They slept in the same room. And every afternoon, they had a group therapy session. And Dr. Rokich hoped that by spending time with each other, with others who thought they too were God, that it would help them kind of deal with reality, that they were not God. Uh, his approach led to some very interesting conversations. One of the men would say, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. I have been sent here to save the earth. And then Dr. Rokich would say, well, how do you know? And then he would respond by saying, well, God told me. And then one of the other men would say, well, now, wait a minute, hold on, I never told you such a thing. And then once the third guy got into the act, it really got chaotic. And so sadly, Dr. Rokish wasn't successful at all in his attempts to convince the men that they weren't God. They were trapped in this upside-down reality where they thought they were the center of the universe and life was really all about them. Friends, the foundation of reality is this. There is one God, and you and I are not Him. And once that is established, then the choice has to be made. And here is the choice. I know that there is the Lord God, the master of all creation. I also know that there is the God of me, the pretender to the throne. Now, who will I serve? Who will I serve? Eidemann says, in my brokenness, I feel the pull to worship me. 
I hear the whispered lie that Adam and Eve first heard in the garden. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Why serve? You rule. You have everything you need to be your own God. Every day is a trip to that orchard. Every day the snake is waiting. I must face that same choice. Will I worship God and find my true place in this universe, the perfect place that he has arranged for me, or will I worship me and decide how I can somehow come up with a better life than the creator of the universe can design for me? That's the choice. And he says that we'll grapple with that every single day, multiple times throughout the day. Now, he says there are symptoms that will help us recognize when the God of me shows up and tries to edge himself onto the throne of our hearts. The first symptom is arrogance. I'm always right. My way is the only way. It's the best way. The God of me won't listen to the wisdom of others. So let me ask you this question. When was the last time you made one of the following statements? I was wrong. You were right. I should have listened to you. I like your idea better. Even when we don't realize it, he says, a touch of arrogance might be present. Another symptom that surfaces when I start to worship the God of me is insecurity. The God of me is consumed with, uh, with what others think and terrified of trying something and failing. You can't help but be self-conscious because when you're God, it's all about you. How about defensiveness? Have you ever found yourself uh, taking the uh, slightest suggestion, the blandest criticism as a personal attack? What makes people this way? Well, when you're God, you must be perfect and no one else could possibly be in a position to criticize you. The God of me will also make you lonely, he says, because you can't handle equals. You certainly can't handle authority. You need people who constantly affirm that it's all about you. Now listen to what God says. This is Ezekiel 28.2. In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God, but you are a mere mortal and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. The God of me, he says, is the most relentless idol of them all. God's at war? Absolutely. It's really me versus God. It's the flesh versus the spirit. All the other gods, in one way or another, take God off the throne and put me in his place. So what's the solution to that? Let's go back to our text. Let's go back to the invitation verse, verse 5. House of Jacob, come let us walk in the Lord's light. Isaiah ends his brief look at the ideal Zion, that future kingdom, with a call for his audience to transform their thinking, to reorient their worldview, and to change their behavior based on the knowledge of what God will do in the future. Don't you want to be a part of this incredible kingdom where you can live in the presence of God and enjoy his perfect peace and prosperity? Well, if you do, you're going to have to change some things. Judah and its leaders can go their merry way and continue to be self-absorbed, or they can choose to glorify God and follow His instructions. The people's response to this choice will determine whether Isaiah's audience will enjoy the kingdom of God 
that he has prepared for those who follow him or miss out on that great privilege. And the same choice is required of all people since the time of Isaiah. People in every generation, that's you and me, people in every generation must choose to come to God, learn his ways, enjoy his kingdom, or they can proudly focus on their own accomplishment, close their eyes and ears to what God is saying, and suffer a humiliation similar to what Isaiah prophesies in our text in verses 6 through 22. So I will say what Isaiah was saying to God's people in those days, to his audience there in Judah, come, let us walk, let us conduct our lives, let us live in the Lord's light. May we walk in his path, may we follow his instructions. And friends, the first advent, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to do that. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, Galatians 4.4. But when the completion of the time came, in God's perfect timing, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem us. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. God wants to adopt us who are spiritual orphans, who do not have a spiritual heavenly father, but by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be adopted as sons and daughters of God, and we can look forward to that incredible kingdom he has in store for us that we know to be heaven. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, quoting from our friend Isaiah, quoting from Isaiah 49, verse 8, where Isaiah is predicting that first advent, that first coming of Jesus. For he says through Isaiah, in an acceptable time, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. How did God help us? He helped us by sending Jesus in that first advent. And look, Paul says, now is the acceptable time. Look, now is the day of salvation. Ever since the first advent of Jesus Christ, the day of salvation has been available. Now is the time we can repent. Now is the time we can change our thinking. Now is the time that we can reorient our worldview. Now is the time that we can follow with a change of behavior that recognizes that on the throne of our heart there is only one place, and that place is reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time to receive God's grace and help that comes to us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that we sang Joy to the World. Drew, I brought my copy of the Faithful Baptist Hymn Book. Some of us are old enough to remember what these are. In the day before the spring, there was once a Baptist hymn. And one of my favorite Christmas hymns of all time is Joy to the World. But you know what? I'm not a theologian or the son of a theologian, but I think verse 1 really refers to the first advent, and all the other verses are referring to the second advent. Listen to the first verse. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. See, right now, the kingdom of God is really a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of grace. It's growing ever so slowly like a mustard seed. 
that's planted and eventually becomes a huge tree. But for now, it's uh, kind of a, a subtle revolution. And one by one, people are acknowledging Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're opening up their heart. They're pushing me off the throne, and they're letting Jesus Christ be Lord of their heart. And so this was all made possible by the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. What happened when he came? He came into his own, and what happened? His own received him not. The world rejected Jesus, and the world is still rejecting Jesus. But friends, there's coming a time in the second advent when the world doesn't have a choice but to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look at verse 4. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations true. The glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. That ain't happening right now. He's not ruling the world with truth and grace and making the nations true. The glories of his righteousness. But there's coming a day. Isaiah saw it. The other prophets saw it. Jesus promised, I'm coming back. When he ascended back to the Father, and I can just imagine the, the disciples standing there with their mouths gaping open, their jaws hitting the ground, and then all of a sudden the angels appeared and said, what are you guys looking at? This same Jesus that you've seen ascend to the Father will one day come again. But when he comes back, he's not coming as a gracious lamb. He's coming as a lion. To judge. So now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Because of the first advent, we can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. But after the second advent, my friends, it'll be too late. Humble yourself before a holy God. Move me off the throne of your heart and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, or else one day. You will be numbered among those when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of grace. Now is the time when God has sent his son to help us. we just got to be humble enough to reach out and acknowledge our need for his help. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your grace. We're so grateful for this incredible prophet. You showed him more than he could possibly comprehend. And yet, Father, so much of what he said came true in his own lifetime. We're so grateful for those impeccable credentials that tell us that what is yet to occur through his prophecy will literally come to pass just like the other prophecies we see have come to pass. We pray, Lord, this morning for anyone in this building who has yet to push me off the throne and acknowledge the need for Jesus as forgiver and Savior and Lord. We pray, Lord, if there's someone here struggling with this sin of idolatry, struggling with coming to grips with the reality of walking in the light of the Lord, your Holy Spirit would give them help. Your Holy Spirit would convict and convince them of their need to confess and knowing, Father, that the blood of Jesus can cleanse us from all sin, all unrighteousness. May it be so, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to stand together, if you will, and uh, the musicians are going to lead us in a time of invitation. Uh, the altar, of course, is open, and I'll be standing down front if you need to come and make a decision public.
uh, share a concern with me, if I can pray with you or some of the elders here, I'm sure they'll make themselves available. But listen to what the Lord is saying to you through this incredible passage this morning and be obedient to what the Spirit is saying to your heart this morning as we sing.